What does Jesus Messiahship tell us about politics? Coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Nerison, Aaron Duncan. Hope you both had a nice Thanksgiving. Are you guys ready to get back into this and to beyond tragedy? I'm beyond ready. I'm beyond ready. I'm always ready. I guess we should say real quick that we are taking a couple weeks off uh, of the pod in December. Um, We'll still be active on Twitter, but we need a little time off to be with our families and folks on our ministries and stuff like that. Actually, I was toying with the idea of maybe having like a little thing that I'll just do, or maybe Zach, if you would want to do something that you just do or Aaron and so on. Um, just like a little reading and meditation if we wanted we might we might end up doing that i don't know something like that i'm just but, so uh, blessed that i'm so blessed that you would spring that on us right now of yeah course, i'm sorry of course cliff would, aaron aaron and i would love to do that it was just an idea i came up with a while back and i just remembered it just now that we might be able to pull something that, like that off where we don't all need to be on here but we could still offer something um especially people are going to be traveling a lot you know obviously for the holidays so they might have you know might have some extra time to to kill, listen to some Love Thy Neighbor. little Advent right. devotional, little Advent Neighbor. Yeah, little Advent Neighbor. I think that sounds nice. But today we are back with Beyond Tragedy. And this week we have a very interesting topic. We're more or less past the Greek mythology. Praise Jesus. Uh, man, that was a doozy. But the thing is, like the crazy thing is uh, what we did a couple of weeks ago with... Um, with greek mythology like it did like keep me thinking about it and i almost i I almost sprung this guy this on you guys of doing a whole other episode just retracing our steps on that chapter to see what else we could pull out of it but i'm done with it (laughs) i'm up for it i really am i think there's i think there are more rocks that we could have turned over uh from that discussion like this, I don't know. Like the whole concept of of tragedy and pity and and that type of stuff. I mean, just I don't think we tied it well together at all. And and if you guys are you all who are listening out there, if you did do the reading uh, from Beyond Tragedy for Chapter Eight on Greek tragedy, uh, I would love to hear other takes on it out there. But it was a pretty difficult chapter. But um, but I think it was a Good discussion, nonetheless. But uh, this week, we're out of that that tragedies type of stuff, and we're now looking at Scripture, and in particular, the concept of Christ's uh, messiahship, and what it means, and what kind of political implications that it carries. So to get us started, uh, can you read us Niebuhr's selected Scriptures for this chapter, Aaron? Um, yes, I can. It's from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, well, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I will, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right. Well, first of all, what any strong opinions on this section? This section of scripture definitely is, uh, in my experience, somewhat controversial. Um, I was kind of surprised that he, you know, it's just kind of a surprising verse to choose because there's so much going on. I know in particular there's the the binding ability, you know, of Peter. All um, right. You know, that's a real, the papacy, that's a real sticking point um and, and to it, be sure Niebuhr doesn't spend any time on that. No. no so it's it's sort of a sort of a humorous thing that's that's my point really is that he talks touches on this really controversial passage in my opinion at least in christian history and then he presumes to just kind of eh, well not really that important you know like he focuses on something totally different within it which there is a lot of important things in it but it's just interesting i guess i think my reading of this is so weighted by how it appears in the gospel of mark because in Mark, so this is this is read from Matthew, right? This is the Matthew one. Mm -hmm. The one in Mark comes as kind of the climax of him explain trying to explain who the Messiah is, and them just not getting it. Peter seems like he gets it at first, and so he says, "This is from the mouth of God." But then, clearly, by his by Peter's rejection of the fact that Jesus is prophesying he's going to die. Jesus saying, you don't get it. So clearly, uh, like you're getting it in one sense, you know that I'm the Messiah, but you're not getting what the Messiah actually does and what's going to occur with the Messiah, which we can only suspect was, you know, prevalent among those who were following Jesus. I mean, not many of them understood what that meant that the Messiah, that the Son of Man would die. You look at where the Son of Man comes from in Daniel 7. And it looks like, in a particular reading of it, it looks like he's going to be a strong conqueror. Uh, and it's difficult to get your mind around. No, actually, the, he will die. You know, he will suffer at the hands of of the Romans, you know. Well, I, I think um, my initial reaction to reading the scripture is something that Neighbor actually kind of points out that we're going to get to is 
this praise and rebuke of Peter in the, almost in the same breath. Um, and, you know, what does it tell us about the human nature? And, and that's kind of like what I was trying to see what Niebuhr would read into it before he got into the section. Yeah. So. Good. Well, I've. Um, so this chapter, by the way, is called The Suffering Servant and the Son of Man. And it's interesting. He's going to point this out more clearly in the chapter, but it is interesting how both of these are kind of talked about separately among the prophets and Jesus unifies them. So you have the suffering servant of Isaiah and you have the son of man of Daniel seven and Christ kind of merging these two things. Uh, typically Christians today just kind of blend these two things together. The, what Actually, typically Christians don't even really understand what the son of man is actually referring to at all, but they'll just think suffering servant is the son of man and vice versa. And they're both Jesus type of thing, but they actually come from two different kind of strains of thought about what, uh, what's going to, what we could expect from a Messiah type of figure. Um, but that's the title of the chapter, suffering servant and the son of man. And Niebuhr has divided this into four different sections with an introduction. And I've taken the liberty to name them. Mm, wonderful. This? Here we go. I'll give my counter naming afterwards. No. Mm, yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to so, go with Aaron's. <laughs> you haven't even heard mine yet. Mine are yeah, well, really good. Aaron's yeah. more creative. I'm reading right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the introduction I've named the Peter problem. Beat that. Uh, part one, I'm just going to call messianism and divine solutions. Part two, political messianism and its objections. Part three, why the servant suffers. And part four, the son of man and parousia. By the way, Greeks, how do you say that? Is it parousia? Parousia. I've heard parousia. I've heard parousia. I've just kind of stuck to parousia. I call it whatever you want. I'm going to uh, defer to the our, our international traveler uh, <laughs> for his proper English pronunciation. I don't. I don't care. Hey, I've okay, been to there. Greece. There you have it. I've been to Greece. Oh, wow. So did you ask them why you're I'm I guess I'm the authority here. No, mm. I didn't ask anybody over there. Yeah. It's a very that's a you're more of like a postmodern authority. There we go. There you go. I've only read like it's one of those words that you've read more than you have had and you know, just brought up in discussion. So I don't know. I've never well, and, exactly how to read it except for the diphthong, the ooh. Oh, there's two pronunciations on Merriam Webster's dictionary. There's parousia. And Perusia. Okay. We'll go with Perusia. Does that sound good? That's, that's fine. Okay. So anyway, now let's go to the introduction. Zach, do you have any uh, opening thoughts on this introduction, the Peter problem? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I have I have a lot to say on this section. Um, and it's really small, by the way. Yeah. It's a it's, really small little introduction. Yeah. Tiny little introduction. But I mean, the, really the, the issue that he's highlighting here is that He's kind of juxtaposing the idea of <clears throat> the Davidic king coming and saying that Jesus somewhat rejected that idea, the, the the Davidic king, and in place took the title of son of man from Daniel and also took the title of the suffering servant um, from Isaiah. Now, <clears throat> I, mean, I mean, right off the outset here, this is super ironic because, you know, having done quite a bit of Bible school, I think that this would have just about any exegete that I had you know, 
just about anybody that's an authority in Matthew. I had a guy who was a professor who was my Greek professor, but he also wrote a huge book on Matthew. And his whole thing was that like Matthew and David were like, you know, the idea of the Davidic King was like essential to the thesis of the book of Matthew. 100%. So, yeah. So it's a, it's a little bit ironic. You know, I think I, I understand what he's doing. It's maybe like the perception of what the Davidic King should be. Um, but at the same time, it's not, super clear you know what i mean it's not like so i think that's part of the weaknesses of this i understand what he's doing but i think it would yeah. be i would hesitate to like use the same approach in my own church i guess in reality jesus combines all three like he combines the <laughs> davidic uh second samuel 7 and whatever the chronicles one is that's talking about in the line of or in the house of david out of the house of david comes the king and whose kingdom will endure forever but he is we could say that he's combining all three of them, but he's reinterpreting the Davidic kingdom through yeah. the suffering servant and the son of man. I also think that has to do with the prevailing perceptions of the day. Like he's obviously painting it in the way that Peter would have understood it. Peter was understanding the guy who would come and pillage and destroy and, you know. Well, that create... that could be very well the second the second coming. Um, uh, we, we could say that, you know, more of a Davidic type of kingdom could be seen upon God's final reign you know um yeah the good and righteous king but only what Niebuhr's point is going to be is that only god can institute that it's not going to come about through our political messianism i guess yeah yeah um, i just i yeah. guess i just had reservations because that you know knowing that about matthew and knowing how vehement matthew is that jesus yeah. is the, the the davidic king is sort of i don't know i, I understand ironic. what he's saying yeah, it's, it's ironic. ironic. Yeah. I think you have to really bear in mind that he's talking about, like, you have to really keep in mind that he's talking about, like, I think the prevailing perception, right? Because he says, uh, what were the views at the time, right? Where were the what were the messian the earlier messianic hopes? You know, that then he gives the three, the one from Daniel, the one from Isaiah, and then the one from the Davidic king. Well, the, what they're so there's nothing inherently <laughs> wrong with the the vision of a Davidic king reigning. Uh, but yeah. What he the point that Niebuhr's getting across in this opening section, he's Niebuhr's trying to peg down why Peter is misunderstanding what Messiah is. And I love this last, last section. He says the Messiah would triumph in the end. So there is a triumph there, there is a Davidic kingdom there. First, the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised up, and then he would come again, quote, in all his glory. And this is a really compelling way of saying it i love niebuhr's way of saying it here he said that peter understood the triumph but not the relation of suffering to it so peter got the triumph part right but he didn't understand how suffering attached how suffering could be understood within this narrative of triumph and now i'm realizing sitting here you asked me for the introduction i totally went to section one first uh that's okay my bad that's a short that that for our listeners, that's how short the, the opening section is. It's like a paragraph. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're talking past each other. You're talking about the first section there. Yeah, it's like the I'm first section. My, my bad. My bad. No, but well, he picks right up on it in the first section. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And uh, he goes through three types of messianism, mess, messiahs, three types of messiahs. The first one is what he's calling political messianism. What's this? It's the belief in a utopian king. It's the, the the hope that Peter was kind of hoping for. Yeah, that 
immediately this king descends and uh, yeah. institutes his kingdom. It's similar to how we might see any revolution or coup, you know, taking control of the government and instituting some kind of perfect society. Yeah, the good society. Uh, and it's interesting because Niebuhr says that this is actually Christ posed. This is kind of his great temptation. Mm-hmm. This is Christ's great temptation. This isn't like a reality as much as it is a temptation to Christ. What he doesn't want to become. Uh, why does I guess why does he why does he pose this as a temptation? I guess we'll get into why he poses it as a temptation. But I guess there's reasons to believe that political messianism, while it may seem appealing on its face, is actually just close enough to being right that is actually dangerous, I guess. Let me put it this way. Niebuhr connects Peter telling him this, that you surely shall not die. You can't die. You can't suffer. What are you talking about, Jesus? He connects that to Satan tempting him in the wilderness. Niebuhr does. What's What's the connection there? Well, it would be wilderness and, and Satan tempting Christ and Peter being, you know, when he, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, right? Those are the two things mm-hmm. we're looking at. Um, I, I think it has to do with that, like that exaltation of political power. Yeah, G- Jesus must have felt very strongly. This is what Niebuhr, Niebuhr, Niebuhr says. Jesus must have felt very strongly that this political conception of the Messiah, messianic rule was a temptation. Mm-hmm. Like th- this, like, um, this rulership to just like take over and control everything. It was, it was a real temptation that was faced that, that Peter is exalting to him and saying, Hey, look, take hold of this, be the ruler, take hold. And then the, the devil previously in the wilderness is saying, take hold rule, um, exalt yourself. There's even a weird scene where people are like trying to, I don't remember exactly where it is. Maybe it's in Luke where they're trying to like force Christ to be King. Do you know about this section? They're trying to like apprehend him and like force him to become king. I don't know. It's weird. Like, so people, our instinct, I think what this tells me about human nature is our instinct when it comes to like making things right in the world is to short circuit power and make it about an overcoming thing rather than a suffering unto others uh, type of thing. It's, submitting unto others maybe or something like that i kind of get this image of the jews wandering in exile almost as an analogy or allegory for the contrasting opinions and beliefs of a state of a city niebuhr talks about relative justice of as achieving an equilibrium of powers it could be analogous to wandering in a desert when there are civil and you know social conflicts and strife between you know non-equal powers and Niebuhr goes on to say later in this this, in this chapter that you know people are trying to impose some sort of good they conceive on to a society and this is the sort of same temptation Christ is presented with impose your good reign Mm -hmm. on these people but he doesn't um, the only thing is when people in the in history of the world have, it ends up with certain people dying in their place. Mm-hmm. So there is a reversal of this, whereas it's not people suffering at the hands of a leader for his imposition of his idea of the good. 
it is of the good king himself suffering suffering for some for some greater ideal um but in terms of that wilderness idea what i'm trying to play off of as the 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 eagerness to get out of exile and into the promised land is is brought about by an anxiety and gives up a, an idea of well this is what we're supposed to go mm-hmm. it, it's so it's so conceived of in haste and anxiety and that we don't haste and, and anxiety we yeah. don't know where we're going um and this is probably the the point about human nature that kind of neighbors drawing out here as well that well you know um our utopias are all examples of this of this sort of things right it's so. interesting you bring up haste and anxiety that's exactly how Niebuhr would put it elsewhere is kind of this rushed to impose what is good to overcome what is evil but ultimately that creates more evil that creates uh, worse forms of evil yeah. it brings to mind kind of that book of christian nationalism just the conception of it how when we are discussing this and i know you weren't here zach but i think that you listened to the those episodes yeah for what, sure what, what came up from both sabella and weatherly was they noticed this really perverse sort of gospel that couldn't even bring itself to mention the cross. Mm-hmm. And so any any power that can't conceptualize itself within that suffering, within the cross, is basically that short-circuiting. It's the Peter mistake. It's the Peter problem of short-circuiting to power, to yeah. impose what is good on the world. And never giving a glance, just skipping over the cross within Christianity that attaches suffering as a part of doing what's right. Yeah. In a weird way. So just playing off the words, the Peter problem here as well. The way Niebuhr is conceiving this problem is that people are looking forward to the future. But he is critical in the previous section on Beyond Tragedy of the lack of maturity of some people. So like... There is a dialectic, I guess you can conceive of a neighbor of between Peter Pan syndrome and the Peter problem, right? Oh, interesting. Yes, absolutely. So. He's going to get into this, I think, in the next section of, I think that I named it like this, the uh, political messianism well, and the response to political messianism, because we can make a mistake and l- we can look at the Peter problem and be like, oh, that's wrong. And then we'll take the complete opposite view and just escape completely from the political dialogue. So before before we jump into that section second section, I did want to ask you guys what you thought about, and we've kind of touched on this obviously a little bit, but there's this thing at the end of the first section where he says in the last paragraph, he says Jesus arrived at his definition of messianic reign of the messianic reign, which he was which he was to initiate by rejecting the political hope of a Messiah who would be powerful and yet perfectly a good king. Instead, he believed that it would. It would have to be ushered in by pure goodness, which had no power, but pure goodness without power cannot maintain itself in the world. It ends in the cross. And what's so weird to me about that is like, that is what I'm so used to in like the traditional understanding of the cross that like part of what being a Christian means is being destroyed by the world. Right. But then it almost makes you wonder about Niebuhr's perspective. If it's, too practical to the point where it almost like how does Niebuhr embrace that conception of the Messiah of Jesus's conception of the Messiah like how does he try to live that out personally because that seems to be Jesus's conception like in Matthew when he says you know uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for they you know 
Yeah. yeah. He, it, it's the whole, like, it's supposed to be the motto of the disciples. Like, hey, we're we're trying to practice pure goodness and so we get destroyed. And Niebuhr kind of goes away from that and says, well, that's great, but I'm going to... Well, you know, I think this is probably for another conversation, but I think that what we're missing here with just the cross is the dialectic of cross and resurrection and uh, the suffering servant and son of man dialectic. So we're not just living, we're not just out here trying to get dead, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and just usher in this pure goodness, but we also have to live in a way as those who live with hope and as those who are trying to bring the kingdom here as it is in heaven. Do you, uh, so it's not yeah. just about dying to self, but it's also, there. there is an element of exerting, maybe that's not the best word, of well, bringing about goodness, despite the fact that we are sinners. Well, I was just going to say, do you think that that, um, do you think that there there's a dichotomy here in terms of, and maybe this is something that is important to read in Niebuhr, maybe it's not, but is there a dichotomy between the personal and the political? You know, what I mean, is there a because that's kind of what it seems like he gets into a little bit as he goes you mean, on. Like a dialectic there, between the. Well, I would almost say a dichotomy. Like, there's okay. We're are we talking about like your personal life as a you know as a husband to your wife and you know are, how you're going to respond, or are you talking about a nation? Because a nation can't yeah. practice this whole. That's yeah. what Niebuhr says. And a nation can't go you know, sacrifice itself on the cross. It's not going to win. It's not going to win the battle. By well, just he gets into the practicality here in a little bit. I think in section three, he gets into, okay, what happens when we try to live purely by the kingdom standards? Um, and we'll we'll get to that here in a second. But we didn't get into but, the other two kinds of messianism. So he goes through the political messianism uh, and, and then apocalyptic messianism is second. And this... Uh, apocalyptic means that the, there's a good time that is, that will come, but it comes at the end of time. So apocalypticism is basically the the Messiah ushers in the good times, mm -hmm. um, and uh, this echoes the Son of Man language from Daniel seven. And then Jesus also okay the third type the, the third type of messianism is suffering servant, and it's typically thought of as the rule of Israel. He says and exile. This Isaiah passage, Isaiah 53, I think that whole section there, it's a really striking prophecy. But uh, but Jesus is taking something that at the time was kind of seen as kind of this collective Israel uh, suffering servant type of uh, messianism, and he's turning it into him, the Messiah, uh, will suffer. And so what, what Niebuhr that then does is he says that Jesus rejects the political messianism and combines the apocalyptic messianism with the suffering servant messianism. Yeah. So the son of man being the apocalyptic from Daniel 7 and then the suffering servant from Isaiah. Uh, yeah, that, that, that near the end of the chapter that translates into history is meaningful and then that there's something there's something be meaningful beyond history as well. Right. So just kind of like preface that before we get into that. Holding part. together the like what the Messiah does now yeah. and what the Messiah will do to come. Niebuhr is, is Niebuhr's critique of what he calls um, theological dualism and mysticism. That that for instance, there's the like a, a world, and then there's some super world that's more meaningful than the world now. So. Our whole goal is to get to that new world or the mysticism where Niebuhr kind of uh, interprets it as saying that, you know, there only is this other world sort of thing. We'll, thing right? So we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. at the end. 
but it shows how like it, this conversation with Peter really mm-hmm. brings out these two aspects, particularly when Jesus says the son of man must suffer. He's bringing together the suffering servant with son of man, apocalyptic language. Uh, and he says, and I quote, this is so important to understanding this chapter, to understanding where Niebuhr is going with this, the, his critique of political messianism and so on. He says, quote, Peter is thus in the position of being regarded as a mouthpiece of Satan for applying human standards to ultimate and divine problems. So the mistake that political messianism makes is when we apply human standards to ultimate and divine problems. When we think that through our own instruments as human beings, as societies, as scientific inventors, etc., as sociologists, whatever, the temptation is to apply our standards, apply what we know to be true and good and all these types of things to solving ultimate and divine problems. That's where we make that mistake of leaping into kind of playing God and becoming dangerous. All right, now part two. I have named it political messianism and its objections. This is an important point. So he wants to bring out, see, I like learning about the stuff. It's easy to to view kind of plus political messianism, the Davidic kingdom, uh, interpreting this, the coming Messiah as being, you know, a, a political and military leader, it's easy to see this just within the context of the Hebrew faith. But what Niebuhr does here is he says, this is the desire of all humans. He expands political messianism outside of the Hebrew prophets, outside of the uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And he says, quote, the political idea rejected by Jesus was older than Hebrew prophecy. So basically, political messianism is not a Hebrew thing, but it is a deep desire or inclination among all people to believe an ideal world can come about through an ideal king. And he gives several examples of this, Babylonians, the Egyptians, always viewing like this perfect king of coming and instilling this order. So this isn't just a Hebrew thing. And Niebuhr tends to think that there's, there's you know, traces of this even within the Hebrew scriptures. But he even says that it's in Plato's Philosopher King is kind of re rerunning this old trope. It, he says it's just a rationalized version of a coming king who will instill kind of a perfect society. You might, yeah, you might just say like a messiah. There's almost a messianism in like all of these. I mean, but you know, and I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about Niebuhr is he's almost just saying like this is sort of an observation from experience. Yeah, like if, yeah, if you're around, if you read if you read enough history and you read enough people and encounter enough people, you're going to recognize that there's a certain hope which prevails for this super king. This, I mean, you get into just the church. If you're a, a pastor or something, you go to a church. The inclination of many people in that church body is to look for somebody that can cure their problems. Mm-hmm. They can yeah. they can elevate the church to a point that it no longer has the problems that it's facing now. And this one person coming is going to instill this new order. Could we even say that the Ubermensch is in some in some ways the, a yeah. almost the one of the purest forms of it, like actually one of the most honest expressions of this, I guess. So is Niebuhr kind of, a re, or I'm sorry, not Niebuhr, is Nietzsche kind of a recapitulation of messianism? I mean, I, he I does want... talk about the Ubermensch as like the coming 
of the Ubermensch in this type of way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's one of the first things I thought of when I read this is that that's like kind of like the secular boiled down version of this hope almost. I was going to say that even post enlightenment with the coming of like great societies, you know, secular ideas removing the, you know, theological taints of the church, um, making way for progress and all these things. Um, even till today, I mean, you think about the elections we've just had in the past decade, uh, these politicians branding themselves as I'm the one person who can get you out of this mess. Mm -hmm. I'm the one person who can solve all of your problems. Yeah. And, you know, we have people talking about people like that as well. And so we, we, we have, we tell each other, we construct myths to solve our pro to help solve our problems or provide some sort of narrative to, to, to give license to someone to help solve our problems. There's always some sort of religious, you know, fever always undergirding mm -hmm. most of our politics that, that never goes away. Yeah. And I think that that there's a necessity there that you're describing. Like there's like, it, I think there's people that it makes them sick to their stomach to do that and to, to take on that almost messianic, I'm thinking, thinking of politicians, but you didn't, you don't see anybody win with the, like the humble, like, I don't know. It's almost like a necessity. You have to adopt that. You have to embrace it. You have to say, ah, oh, yes, I can. I can save yeah. you. you know? Aaron and I were talking about this the other day. There's kind of a necessary illusion in politics. Like mm -hmm. if you don't pose an impending perilous problem, then you can't get people on your side almost. And like, I would, everything I, has to be at stake in this election, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I don't know how much of Chris Hedges you guys have read, but I think actually this would be my greatest criticism of him is that he's unrealistic about the necessity of this, right? It, it is clearly an illusion, but, it, but to constantly criticize those who are making the, these illusions, it's that counterproductive. You know what I mean? It's well, like you're basically saying that. I think Niebuhr and Hedges, because I have, I've read the Empire of Illusions by Hedges. Uh, but he does, he talks about it like it's this thing we got to shake off, like this like this empire of illusions, uh, when it's really just reality. Like we just, it's it's almost a necessity, like, and we have to learn how to live within that, where yeah. people are craving these illusions. Really, the best possible way to respond to the illusions is to do exactly what Niebuhr does, treat it like, treat it all like religion. Treat it all like it's it's theological problems. It's not yeah. uh, something you can totally shake off. We are all incurably religious, which is another way of saying we are all incurably ascribing divine properties to finite things. The problem is theology, and Christianity offers a unique theology that can speak to this, that gets rid mm -hmm. of the idols, that tries to get rid of the illusions of uh, humanity's greatness or humanity's, uh, you know, how we are destined to destruction even, mm -hmm. and living more in the reality of the situation. So Christianity is in the business of disillusioning us. Yeah, It's, it's, it's in the business of stating things as they actually are. And, they, and it does this, Christianity achieves this, Niebuhr argues, by a realistic picture of who, who human beings are. And also because it points something good. Yeah, it, it orientates the heart without goodness, without messianism. Exactly. Pure nature is fascism. And if we 
take the the enlightenment route and just remove religion if we just see religion as the source of all the problems neighbor is talking about like oh well, neighbor maybe just being naive let's just get rid of religion and then we'll be fine we won't have all these political messianisms because we'll have all this stuff. Niebuhr's critique of that in this chapter is, well, you know, even if you just don't have all this stuff and all you have is a quote unquote meaningful history, then you'll have political leaders and ideologies who just self-justify their inactions. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think so you religion actually isn't the problem. You actually see the uh, the very practical application of this. Actually, I think less in pol in politicians and more in like like if we had to apply or try to tell like the listeners who would be a good example of what he's talking about here are modern day. I'd say the CEO, the tech CEO specifically, you know, the CEO is going to help us transcend the, all that ails humanity. The CEO that, Musk? Uh, I was going to say any names, you know, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to get him on the show, you know? So well, it's, it's funny how, like, I know we, we sometimes make fun of ourselves for always kind of saying that democracy is the best terrible thing or something like that. But kind of my impulse, whenever I hear kind of a new take on like where we should be going with politics and, and moving away from kind of our enlightened enlightenment principles or something like that founded in democracy or found in democracy, I like, I always have this and I think it does come from my Christian uh, view of sin and maybe a little bit of Socratic cynicism in there, but I but I am always just kind of skeptical that whatever you bring to me is going to be any better than what we have. And in fact, like it, like by taking away, you know, some of the problems of democracy actually creates new worse ones. You know, so I so I think that that's kind of a suspicion that Niebuhr always wants to ingrain in us about anybody who comes along saying they have a better way. I don't know. Let's hear about it. You know, but. I'm not so sure we can basically what you're what what you're saying translates to and this you can don't hit me if I'm wrong because I'm sitting right next to you. Um the best politics is a good stalemate to a degree. No. An equilibrium of powers. Well, it means an equilibrium of powers, but also it means that an equilibrium of powers guarantees uh a maximal uh representation of of views um what okay let's go into what he goes into next and maybe this will help us answer this question but he says that the trouble with this political messianism is that all power in human history is too partial to be good let me say that again all power in human history is too partial to be good so no matter who you have on top if they have absolute power or whatever, they are going to be only reflecting the interests of a minority, um, of a small group who happens to be in power. And and he's, he says that Hosea is kind of the first prophet to talk about this, and he asks kind of a rhetorical question. Hosea asks a rhetorical question. He says, where is the king who will bring prosperity to all your cities? Basically saying, you don't have a king that can bring prosperity to all your cities. Emphasis on all. So from the from this, Niebuhr actually then goes after Hitler and says that if Hitler is really the divine ruler that Germany imagines, he will hardly seem to be divine to the nations at whose expense Germany would triumph. So, of course, to his own people, he looks divine. Does he look divine to Poland? No. Does he look divine to France, to everybody he's about to conquer? Absolutely not. So he achieves a partial goodness. And that's what's so 
evil about him. Now, coming back into democracy, if we can have something of a balance of powers, then that at least mitigates the possibility that one will represent only a certain power and releases us of the struggle of it releases us of the struggle of coming up with a consensus balance of powers. So yeah, so I mean we're not going to make a whole lot of like progress in democracy, although I might say that we have made quite a bit of progress despite the stalemates, but at least it provides a window through which many minority views can come in um, if we do enough to preserve what is democratic. Now, obviously, there's the argument in the past and still presently, there are many that are marginalized and don't have a voice. But that's a problem with democracy not being more fully exacted in reality. Um, We should be all about bringing about more democracy so more people on the margins can speak. So anyway, any thoughts so far on the I, I think this is an important critique that the trouble with this political messianism is that all power in human history is too partial to be good. Mm-hmm. Hitler, he brings in Hitler. Hitler is only granting a partial goodness, but it is in part obviously evil. You could even say, right, and this is maybe part of the problem, maybe even in democracy, but in this just a few sentences after the the one you just quoted about um power, human power being too partial to be good. Um Niebuhr says that the power which organizes society is wielded by a particular group, and in as far as it rests upon that group, it will not be as unequivocally interested in the general general well general welfare as it claims to be. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? So Hitler, Mussolini, um, Stalin, Stalin. I mean, even we could probably even say um, Roosevelt. Um, all these leaders who claim to be in the interest for the people. Mm-hmm. It's a bit less clear that that's actually always the case, or even that, you know, their ideal visions of the society and where it's going rest upon the general welfare of everybody. Well, that's why I, that's why, hence the critique of yeah. political messianism, that not one of these people can do that. Exactly. And he even goes to the extreme and says, okay, take a people who has been the most interested in in equality than any nation ever, communism. Communists want to say, oh, hey, we're all equal here. We look after the interests of all groups. But, ne- but Niebuhr says, no, look at the Mos- Moscow trials where essentially Stalin expels Trotsky and had... And had the other had the shoe been on the other foot, Trotsky probably would have expelled Stalin. I realized what they tried to do, trying to prove that Trotsky was a fascist. Yeah, they're <laughs> exactly. They were trying to other Trotsky, even though he was just kind of degrees apart from yeah. Stalin. I know Trotskyists would probably be like, no, he was totally different, you know, and Trotsky's would method would have worked or something like or whatever. It would have worked in Russia. Uh whatever. Oh, well. The the point is, is that even in the most interested even in the in in the country that is most interested in equality still has ways of only representing a partial goodness well and he says at the end of section two i think and i think this is like undergirding what you're saying because we're we're still in section two i believe Mm -hmm. is and i think that it's rare that uh niebuhr makes like a statement that is like core to his political and theological like 
you know, it's really hard to systematize his stuff, but I was, if I was going to systematize it, I think this line that comes at the very end is like, it helps understand this whole section too, but also just understand Niebuhr and like kind of almost an axiom, I think of his belief. He says, we are still living in a world which falls short of the kingdom of God, even though the law of the kingdom has been revealed to it. And I think that like, there's something about like maintaining that in main, holding those two things together. The fact that the kingdom has been revealed but that we continually fall short of it. You have to, if you want to understand Niebuhr, you have to understand that those two things uh, are, are held in tension and not like fused right. together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that This talk about kingdom and how it relates to politics is tricky, uh, but it's so good. I mean, it's really important that we get this, but um, we need to establish, first of all, this is where Niebuhr sets up kind of what his understanding of justice is. And he says that, as a realist, he says, politics is always a contest of power. At its best, it arrives at a tentative equilibrium of power. So at the the best possible scenario we have, given the contradictions of human nature, Mm -hmm. is some kind of a tentative equilibrium between powers. Mm -hmm. And he quotes St. Augustine and says, uh, the peace of the world is based on strife. It's based on the struggle, you know, between powers. But here's a very interesting insight. He says, perhaps Jesus regarded the political aspect of messianism as such a terrible temptation because illusion about politics lead to the most baneful consequences. And this is important. I have this one highlighted here. They lead to the religious sanctification of the inevitable injustices of a political power. So when we have these illusions about politics that are that are necessary ushered into our political framework by means of a messianic type of figure this ultimately leads to a religious sanctification of the inevitable injustices of a particular power so hitler is going to fail no matter how much you believe he's the messiah but now because you believe he's the messiah that automatically sanctifies in your mind every action that he does so it can no longer be evil You know, once you view Trump as chosen by God, as the second son of man, I think is the book title, then therefore everything he does is sanctified, is baptized into, you know, his own sanctification. It's true, man. It's completely off the base, but I just remember hearing a guy being interviewed by some reporter and the guy was like, well, you know, he, I've never heard someone talk more about God and Jesus so he must be a Christian. Mm, like, so dangerous. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so dangerous to just automatically attribute kind of d- of a, a divine sanction to a person who's in power. Yeah, that's that's really bad. So he tears down the illusions about political messianism, but then he but then he turns on those who have arrived at this conclusion. Who just like Niebuhr are like, yeah, political messianism is bad. But then they further conclude unjustifiably that all politics is therefore a lost cause because of it. So this is kind of, I think, the dialectic that Zach was pointing to earlier uh, where, okay, now that we've rejected political messianism, now, you know, we can't find anything good in it. Like there, you can't do anything just or good or 
bring about any form of peace whatsoever. You'll get people asking questions like, well, what does the kingdom of God have to do with the politics of this world? Right. This clear, yeah, yeah setting up this clear dualism. Yeah. Um, Many friends who say that. So, and this is what he basically says. Basically says then that just because the love and harmony of the kingdom of God is not fully reigning here, and just because relative peace and justice are only established through this equilibrium of power does not mean we should have nothing to do with it. Um, it doesn't mean we should write off politics completely. And he says, and here's a quote from him, in large areas of life, Niebuhr says, in large areas of life, our concern must therefore be to prevent life from destroying life. This problem of elementary justice can be solved neither by returning to the ideal of the good king nor by trying to introduce pure goodness without power into the world so what we have born right here from niebuhr's uh in this section is niebuhr's trying to say that on the one hand we can't just sanctify one person to bring in all political goodness on the other hand we can't just have people so set apart and so holy and so pure in their goodness that they they can just usher in goodness into the world without power whatsoever. But he says this is an impossibility. I mean, I think, I don't know. I don't agree that it's an impossibility because I think there are people who have done that. Done um, well, like, like they've, they've made change through kind of well, I guess uh, it couldn't be possible because what you were saying is that there's nobody that does this. Um, I guess Christ would be the only example of somebody who could actually do this, and he ended up dead. So, <laughs> never mind. But alive, okay. Uh, so then he goes right into kind of the two sides of this. Uh, he says, "Mr. Frank Buckman and the Oxford groups have stumbled on the first idea about political messianism. They dream of the kingdom of God on earth." Through the conversion of Henry Ford or Adolf Hitler. He really hates Henry Ford. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Lumping him up with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but I'm sure that was like a popular thing at the time of like of like uh imposing on Henry Ford and Adolf Hitler, obviously kind of a messianism that they didn't deserve. Yeah. But the hope is, oh, if we could just convert them, then they'll be able to bring about this greatness. Like, that's probably the hopes of trump earlier on is yeah if we could just kind of rein him in and turn him christian then uh, nothing will stop him and then they got it in their head oh he is a christian didn't you tell me that time he proposed that bible oh my that's, gosh that that wasn't proof enough for you that was it's, it's a little bit like that kind of the person that says hey like i have this girl i'm dating her and i'm gonna like she's gonna become a christian okay. and then like we're gonna get married and yeah i've seen that i've seen that done in practice and it's just kind of a, there's a falsity to it the whole time. Yeah, she has like a a Richard Dawkins tattooed on her leg or something, and you're like, oh, I'm I'm bringing her to church. <laughs> um. So continuing on, then he goes. So he says that this dream of converting these people into messianism is crazy, and then he says pacifism and other forms of absolutism try to apply to the second idea. So just being really good. And he says, they regard the ideal of pure goodness without power as a simple moral possibility, which waits for its application only upon a resolute moral decision. That's they, the apocalyptic 
thing, right? Yeah, it's just taking it as apocalyptic. They do not understand, Niebuhr says. These people do not understand the sinful contradictions in human nature and do not see that even the man who tries to live in terms of pure love will display qualities of, of selfishness in his life from which other men must be protected. Interesting. So even the good person, we like people who aspire to just be good Christians, we need protection from them too. You know, because they aren't like they're nuts too. Like as we've seen in history, we need protection from the Puritan types. Witches sure do, <laughs> you know. So uh, th this leads me to like I remember, I'm like thinking back to just the natural flow of how our debate went with Anthony. For some reason, I got stuck on this when we we're debating pacifism. I got stuck on this thing, like wanting to show him that church is politics. That, okay, you can escape from the political proper world, but still within your own community of people, there is still politics here where we are therefore incapable of puri purifying ourselves from the task of overseeing sinful groups of people and guiding them into a more just way of living. So even in church life we are like as ministers as pastors we are kind of like politicians in that we are overseeing sinful people who are incapable of wrongdoing and evil um and therefore we can't completely purify ourselves from you know the world because the world is the, our church you know yeah uh we are still making difficult decisions and we still can't just be good you know and well, and count as, people to not be sinful so the, or, the thing i would i would say that is i i, I agree rowan williams once said that you know politics is just the art of living with one another baseline the issue i think a lot of people like maybe anthony or you know other people like my, even like people like my parents would take issue is like when you assess someone like donald trump as an outsider he's not a quote politician unquote when he's running right. why is that well he's not so institutionalized as you know someone like hillary clinton or barack right. obama might be so when i think people talk about the difference between politics and the church they're just talking about two separate institutions not really minding the the fact that politics is a broader definition that encompasses a wider reality. Well, this is a part of the problem where people will associate all this evil with the political realm. Yeah. And Niebuhr would call this like a necessary evil, like it's a balancing of powers and stuff like that. But that is the same world as that your church is in. Mm -hmm. There is no like clean break between the purity of the church and the yeah. evil politicians over there that's still within the church. And we know this more than anybody as workers in the church, that there is always power going on. There's always a balance of power. I tell you what, man, if you listeners out there are doubting this, come to my council meetings. Okay. I love everybody. I love every single person in our church, but there is an invisible power going on in how people talk to each other, how people propose different yeah. things. Uh, there's even like kind of a building coalitions aspect to the job of getting people on board before you present things 
whatever, like there, there's a balance of power already existing in your church that you have to deal with. And mm, preach. There's, there's not this clear, let's just all die to self. And let's just, I mean, let's just all pound in ourselves to crosses every Sunday. And that's what the church is. It's much more complicated than that. We can never completely extract ourselves from the contradictions of humankind. And, and that's what Niebuhr's going at here. And I think and I think one of the most painful things to deal with, not most painful, but yeah, it's painful. It's like agonizing is the word I would use. Is when somebody comes along and they say that they they speak about like Christianity in terms of ideals. And so they say, well, this isn't the ideal. You know, like we, we should we shouldn't have to do politics. We shouldn't right. have to persuade people. We should just be able to just come out and say whatever we want. Well, it's like, well, there's different opinions and different views and pe- different tolerances for suffering and different tolerances for disagreement and all this different stuff. And so when somebody comes along and says, it's actually more naive you know, to take that approach yeah. to say that this is how it should be. And it's like, great, that, that's wonderful, but it's not, you know? And so it's very painful as a pastor to have people constantly kind of coming to you with those that naive view that there should be no politics here. And it's like, Let's just wow. be like Jesus. Yeah, no, let's just be like Jesus. It's like that's not it's not that simple. You, there, there has to be politics, and we will play politics regardless. That was my like when when Reverend Bailey was away on. I love you our, calling me Reverend Bailey. Uh, sorry, when uh, when when Cliffy Boy over here was away for his holiday, I had to preach in his stead, and I gave this. It was during our stewardship month, mm-hmm. um, asking how people can contribute to the church. And in their own means and times and talents. And I preached a sermon on First Corinthians 12, the latter portion, where Paul basically is saying that we should give attention to those we deem less or weaker than us. And trying to get everybody in that group who are struggling for positions of power to just give attention to the other groups mm-hmm. um, instead of just looking at themselves and their own needs. And I'm sort of thinking like, well, is Paul being too idealistic here? Or is this an actual thing and i i tend to think well this is an actual solution to our problem and and it can be implemented notice he's not ignoring the reality of power he's just saying look to those who don't have it and and elevate them the reality situation is paul concludes the section with just remember when one of us suffers we all suffer together but when one of us rejoices or is honored we all rejoice together and so i mean there is a powerful inversion of our normal expectations and view of politics. And I think we should strive to implement that in our congregations Mm -hmm. or not. But again, the issue is, as you said, cliques, groups, Mm -hmm. people, ideals, expectations, these things, you know, and he's, well, and good luck, like a good example, if anybody doubts this, like all you'd have to do is say, uh, have you ever had a pastor that lost credibility that, that like, obviously had a terrible idea or, I don't know. Pastors lose credibility for all sorts of reasons. That pastor's ability to lead his church is like gone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so he had to build that credibility. Like that's the political thing. You know what I mean? He's yeah. building credibility so that he can persuade. Yeah. It's naive if you don't. And it's strange because a lot of people in the church want to exit the political sphere for a lot of the reasons that people want to leave the church. Because of the politics of it, because of the, the you know difficulty of it. the difficulty of it, because of the the power, you know structures of a church, that, they feel othered, they feel marginalized, or it's the the monastic, the monastic appeal. You know what I mean? 
It's the oh, desire. Right. It's the desire to be. And he gets into that here in a second. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great transition. Well, I mean, the monastic thing, I think, is a really good thing. We'll come into it. But I mean, in reality, people's motivations are up for debate and, you know, up to, you know, that person to kind of explain why they do those things. But a lot of people I know who are haphazardly, you know, one foot in the door in politics or one foot in the church and one foot out is because they're scared of the responsibility that belonging to something mm-hmm. comes you know i mean if i can just sit on the sidelines and do whatever i want and not have to engage with people who are debating whether or not jews are human beings right. then i don't I, it takes it takes the otis off me and i don't have to feel that responsibility that, that weight and pressure. Right. yeah exactly yeah, that's interesting. So part three is called why the suffering sir or why the servant suffers. I'm sorry. Part three is why the servant suffers. And he first starts off with the implications of the suffering servant. So Jesus coming as this uh suffering servant, what are the implications? The first is that Jesus does not impose goodness upon the world by his power, but rather he suffers from the injustices of the powerful. Mm-hmm. what's he going on about with this? Like, where, where does he take the suffering servant thing? Like what, why this implication? I kind of alluded to it earlier in our discussion, mm-hmm. but every leader who conceives of their idea or their, every party that conceives as their vision for a country uh, or even just a business as good, will have to impose its will on a student collective or on individuals whether they those people agree with it or not mm-hmm. um and so people end up getting excluded or the worst case scenario marked uh for not agreeing with that burn you know? the stake yeah burn the stake um it, now the suffering servant who you know in 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 the full and fullness and glory of god is true power mm-hmm. does not impose his will and is thereby killed because he doesn't raise up an army or people. Right. right. And Niebuhr really gets, I, he brings us up many times in his writings, the irony of the, the Jewish and Roman structures being the pinnacle of human goodness, mm-hmm. being the thing that killed perfection that, and here's a quote from him that he, he suffered that Christ suffers most particularly from the sins of the righteous mm-hmm. who do not understand how full of unrighteousness is all human righteousness. So us at our very best in our own politics and our own systems of where we are trying to do what's best for society, we still kill Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think the great, uh, a really great example of this comes at the end when he talks about philanthropy and how philanthropy is often used to conceal injustice and that's like such a prevalent thing like if we just yeah if we just appease if we just appease if we just appease but the reality is they need to change the system so that they don't have to do that once again it's just another hit at henry ford like when i read that i just i just read like henry ford (laughs) every time you read philanthropy in neighbor just think of henry ford um but the, the the one thing that i wanted to bring up too is that the, the the weird imposition of powers so like in our world, when a party or a CEO or someone imposes a new strategy or some sort of method or you know policy proposals, 
what they're doing is trying to advance something. They're not trying to uncover problems. They're trying to just provide solutions. But the one thing that Niebuhr writes is that the sinful world is not destroyed by the kingdom of God. It is, however, fully revealed. Yes. And this is part of the reversal of Christ's non-imposition of his power. He reveals how evil the world is mm -hmm. by getting killed by it, by relinquishing his power. There's this interesting connection that we have to make here between the creation is good. There are hints of good. Think about this. There's even hints of goodness in us killing Christ. This is messed up, but they're like we are wanting to do what is right. But Christ showing up and us killing him for being perfect is the proof of how far we we're gone, like how bad even our righteousness is. Yeah. And he says, this is a great quote. He says, the world does not know how far it has strayed from the pattern uh, from creation, from good creation. The world does not know how far it has strayed from the pattern of creation until the original is revealed. This kind of reminds me of Mother Heraclitus quote. <laughs> but, Do it. Um, let me just pull it out real quick. Because this is like, I was wondering this earlier when after we read it, but um, let me see if I can find it. Come uh, on, Heraclitus. Where yeah, buddy. Anyway, Heraclitus says something to the effect of good and evil are the same thing. Pain, like when I, when I have to stab you to open you up for surgery, it's painful. That okay. could be considered. It's like unity of opposites. Unity of opposites, or like, mm -hmm. and like in in this issue, what you're getting at, it shows the complications of just relying on what um what motivates us. Mm -hmm. You know, are we really just depraved individuals for killing Christ, or like, you know, are, are those people fully evil, unredeemable? Yeah. Like, would you say like the the Jews who call for Christ's execution, the Romans who you know, crucified them or any different than people down the street right now. No, no. And so that kind of like, well, they have different motivations. We are so far beyond corrupted. That's why we have yeah. to constantly be looking back to Christ. Yeah. Maybe That's it, the big difference between his righteousness and ours. Maybe it gives new life to what Christ says on the cross. You know, the, the line, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and this drives a huge wedge between our understanding of political messianism Trumpism, Hitler, Stalinism, whatever, and what actual true goodness actually is, that we shouldn't expect any human being to bring about except anything that is just about a new balance of powers that's going to uh, exert a new form of partial good at the expense of great evil. But Christ is always going to be standing there like a big sore thumb in history showing what true goodness is that whatever next leader we get can never sniff, mm -hmm. can never get to that. And then he goes after the the monks. What do you guys take from this? Well, I mean, I think he just highlights really well that the monks are, you know, aestheticism is a, like this idea that is almost like always has this certain lingering insecurity to it that, you know, that you could be naive about it and say that they don't somehow benefit from the bloodshed of others, but really for them to exist, they have to exist based on the sinfulness of others. Right. They have a, an illusion that's almost as perverse as the political messianism 
and that they think that they are pure by escaping society and just living on their own or something like that. I but love it's so true. Here. It is. He says that monks, monastics like to think they are living the kingdom, but are unwitting, quote, parasites on the sins of his fellow man. And he ought, therefore, to claim no moral advantage over them. So he's saying they benefit, basically, from the moral sacrifices others stake in the equilibrium of power. The people in D.C., maybe, or wherever, the, the positions of power who are doing the hard work of balancing this power and maybe sinning, at, you know, or, you know, doing something less than good because they are part of this, because they're a part of the swamp type of thing. They're, they're kind of like the Good Samaritan, uh, the, the, not the Good Samaritan. They're kind of like the guys in the Good Samaritan who walk by. You know, I just got to stay out of this. I don't yeah, want to, I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. I don't want to offend anybody. Like, I don't want to like cause any problems. So I'm just going to like leave you there. I don't, that way, like nobody. But at the same time, he calls them parasites. They're actually benefiting from the stability that politics is providing. Yikes. Yeah. So take that. Man. Basically, I'll let those other people sin so that I can enjoy the relative stability that allows for my monastery to exist. Yeah, you know, or to fund it's, my monastery. Ex exactly to donate. Yeah, I'll let you. It's kind of like I thought. I think you brought this up on a past podcast, Zach. About I think you watched some documentary on cults, and like this cult was like making all this money off of these people, uh, but they were claiming to live this minimal minimalistic life, but they were oh, selling yeah. things they were making or something. It like wasn't. That it wasn't a cult. Like, it was actually just a like a uh, a, a commune. And I think it still exists today. It's like in Virginia or something like that. And yeah, that, they they literally like they had to come to the realization that like the reason they can exist as a commune is because they sell products to a consumeristic society that's willing to buy their product. And they were fully aware of that. And actually, Niebuhr says that that's a good thing to be aware of the fact that you know at least be aware of the fact that you're. Yeah, you don't have great. any illusions about this. Yeah, like, let's a, call it what it is. You're making a living in a, a parasitic commune, society, just like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that and the same goes, man, for like all these semi-monastic expressions of Christianity. And I'm not going to mention the, the theologian's name again because we've oh. mentioned him enough on here. But this kind of purity, gosh, I follow. Yeah, I'm not going. There's a huge that, portion but... of evangelical politics that yeah, this is their politics. Stay away, like I, I want to preach. And actually, you know, you see it worked out in church conflicts a lot of times, where somebody will say something like. You know, somebody will do something rather heinous and then somebody else will say, well, I don't really want to get into this. I, I'm not going to take sides. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay back so that I can minister and, and be able to share the gospel with them. And it's like, dude, they did something heinous, like take a side. You know what I mean? You, you're not by abstaining from this. You're actually condoning what they're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not, but you're you know, not actually like, free like of reading it. Niebuhr. You, you really get, you're able to empathize with them because they are at least you know, combating the political messianism, right? And they pick up on that critique and that's good. And they're like, you know, we, we don't put our trust in politicians, which is a good thing. I wish that more people on the right had that um, and the left for that matter. But then they'll take this extra step and draw a conclusion that therefore let's wash our hands of the whole thing. Well, but it's an illusion that they are pure. Right, exactly. You know, it's an illusion that they are that, you know, they're, they're not buying things from, you know, that are made in sweatshops and they're, they're, you know, yawn and on and on and on and on, that they're not somehow benefiting from that system. 
Right. I wish we had a better conception of trust. Because someone like trusting someone trusting in like a Trump mm. is not really trustful. Again, it's just kind of someone throwing off all the stuff they hear onto someone say, fix it. Mm-hmm. That's not trust. It's it's it, it it's it's just deification. Mm-hmm. It's, ab- it's abdication. Well, it's, it's abdication on the, in the sense that it removes the, the personal agency of the person having to deal with the problems in the world. Right. And especially but, a democracy. But again, that's not really trust. An image of God. Because, I mean, yeah. again, you know, what happened after the midterms? Blown out. Democrats mm-hmm. controlled the Senate. And everyone's like, DeSantis is looking quite cool down there. Right. So that's not really trust. They're kind of just hopping to the next guy to, yeah. to do their dirty work. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we had a, an episode a while back about this kind of deal with the devil type of thing uh, that Trump actually allows them to kind of do the bad stuff for them almost, do the dirty work for them in a more overt sense without taking any, not even have the uh, having the appearance of Christian yeah. uh, sensibilities or anything like that. Just you do it, you get it done and allow us to exist I mean, th- that is the monastic life, almost. Yeah. And to, There's so something weird. even more sinister, though. It's so more sinister to me to, to claim purity, but to have somebody else, you know, murder, <laughs> doing the, the dirty work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. To say, I'm a pacifist, but I, I sure love being in the United States where people die for my, you know, the, the peace of society. Well, that's the thing. I remember Howard was talking about, um, sorry, I, I named him. Uh, but I remember him talking about mm-hmm. how we worship America with our, we even sacrifice our youth in war. And it's almost like we're sacrificing them on an altar. So he gets that part. But then he's speaking also from a country that has benefited from young men dying, you know, uh, to maybe establish uh, U.S. global hegemony um, so that he could have his book deal. You know, and live that like that. I'm sorry, that's a really cynical take, but I'm just saying he's ignoring the reality of his own contingency upon that system. But there is a subtle and, I mean, subtle yet glaring issue: is to what extent can we positively say these things are benefit? They benefit. They do, but it almost is like throwing lambs to the slaughter, like throwing young eighteen year olds into Vietnam. You know, mm-hmm. at what I mean, I understand what you'll come with stopping the spread of communism. Well, the, I don't believe that. I don't, you know, that you don't with that Vietnam. Well, I mean, well, again, I mean, it's one of those things that's like, well, you know, for what purpose? Iraq, you know, yeah. again, is, you know, are do these things have sort of benefits? Yeah. I mean, people do benefit from those things. Usually, we benefit from global security, I yeah. guess, yeah. from not having Putin's running around and taking yeah. over countries. I just see I I see it as a much more intimate tension, and it's so hard. I mean, to say, it. and this might be where like people like a Howard or even I kind of want to throw my hands up in the air at times. Like, well, where where how can you measure this out? Because those things are so intimately tied together. It's beneficial, yet it's awful. You know, it is awful, and I'm not here. I'm not going to defend like sending soldiers, like kids, into war zones, but I think that we can look at the current system and 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 understand the evils that can come 
from not having certain threats and a balance of power in the world. It's just like, incredibly, yeah, it's incredibly, ahead. it's incredibly pretentious. I think that's the thing. It's pretentious to believe that you have it. If somebody comes along and says that we don't, we're a pure and virtuous nation, it's 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 pretentious. You know, I mean, it's that's pretentious the really, to pretend. To yeah. pretend, I'm it's kind of yeah. saying it that it's way. Pretentious it's to pretentious say to pretend that this is good. Then, like yeah. that kids are dying so that we yeah. can benefit from it. Yeah. But it's equally pretentious to say that you haven't benefited from 18 year olds that died on the beaches of Normandy. Exactly. You know both what I mean? Ways, like both directions, it's illusion that you want to buy into. Yeah. You you, know, you could but, say that that's wrong and we should strive for a world where we don't have 18 year olds dying on the thing, but also to recognize that you can say that because they made those mm -hmm. decisions. The question yeah. isn't whether there's global hegemony. It's just who has it, yeah. I guess. And that's, yeah, I guess, I don't know. You know, I think all three of us would probably say I'd rather live in a Western, uh, you know, democracy friendly style uh, global hegemony than, you know, the alternative. Yeah. I mean, that, that's so true. I, I, I mean, I recall reading in, uh, it's a fantastic book um i can't remember the author's name but it's on the existentialists it's it's a sort of narrative on how existential existentialism arose um into paris um through the parisian philosophers some of the beauvoir jean paul Sartre, um you know camus these guys and there are a, there were a few of them prior to the nazis invading um France saying we should just capitulate to the Nazis uh, because capitulation is better than war. Right. And, you know, is that, I mean, is that true? I mean, so could, could we conceive of a, a, like a Nazi society, right? Today, sure, it wouldn't be democratic. Sure, it would have atrocities and these things, <laughs> right? It would have all these sorts of things. There'd a lot of would, dead Jews. There would be a lot yeah. of dead Jews, right? Um, but there might be some white Germans at this point who are, will be talking similar to us. Oh, oh, we just need to maintain our system to some extent. Uh, oh, so you're so you're kind of like talking about the Overton window a little bit. Like, could so like could is it possible that we're actually really bad, but we are just finding ways of justifying it just based upon hegemony or based or based upon kind of our own. Well, uh, I, values and that type of thing I and but and and the overton window would shift like if we were in a more nazi environment then there'd be people just like us justifying it in the same realism i think so i mean i think there are obviously differences we you like there are we have much better institutions yeah. and organizations just journalism and yeah yeah of course like, and then not, not not dead jews like you know all those things are great right and all the things are fantastic um, so there obviously are more preferable scenario situations, but if we're going to be realistic, like I think Niebuhr wants to be as well, if we had a different world, you know, there would be people probably saying the same things as us to an extent, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but you couldn't like you. Niebuhr talks a lot about freedom. Talks a lot about uh, human rights. He talks a lot about things that 
a totalitarian system does not have that are based on human nature, something that is unchanging. So mm-hmm. even in a totalitarian system, yeah, you throw Niebuhr into that. There's a reason why Bonhoeffer could be like, this is not good. You know, I think it was his kind of Niebuhrian spidey sense in some way that propelled him to actually do something within the realm of sin, maybe doing evil to do good, you yeah. know? Uh, so this is where I think, I, I think that, I think a critique that I always anticipate for Niebuhr is that couldn't a bank robber be a realist too? Uh, couldn't like somebody doing an evil sure, or, uh, or wrong thing, but I, I don't think that shifts for Niebuhr. I think you put, that's why I, somebody had posted the other day, like, what if the fascist takeover or something like that? Um, and I had to think about this. My politic would have to sh- change. Um, like, because there are no more uh, avenues through which my criticism could come about, you know. Uh, so, you know, I would be forced to do something uh, and forced to be courageous in that scenario. So, yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think that you could just pick up. I think you could do that with a realist. I think I don't think you could do that with Niebuhr. Just you know, pick up a Niebuhrian worldview, put it in China, yeah, and he looks the exact same as and like the status quo in it China. It would change. It yeah. would change. No, I, should... I see what you're saying. So the next part, uh, part four, the Son of Man and Perusia, he basically says that okay, he's laid the groundwork. We cannot escape the contradictions in which human nature is involved. We can't escape it. Um, And he says the son of man in apocalyptic literature involved, quote, a transmutation of the whole world order. So a change of the whole world order. And he has a really quick but important distinction from the Greeks. He says this is not a Greek conception of an eternal life that we just simply die and we go to paradise or whatever. Um, But there's an actual transmutation to the temporal order comes with the son of man. So there's this promise uh, that everything will be changed. And he, Niebuhr calls this the Perusia, or scripture calls this the Perusia. And he says that there are two ideas contained in the Christian notion of Perusia. That first, the transmutation does not require the destruction of creation, since creation itself is not of itself evil. Creation is good, so it's going to be redeemed. And the second part is redemption must come from God alone since, quote, every human action remains within the contradictions of sin. So whatever this change is going to occur at the end of history, it's got to be in history. It's got to be a part of history at the end of history. And it's going to be from God ultimately. Now, he's going to say there are two traps that we can sometimes fall into. I want to see what Aaron, because Aaron brought this up earlier. There's the mystic trap and there's the dualistic trap that you can fall into. So explain these for us. Well, the dualistic trap would say that there are two distinct realities. And by virtue of most dualistic thinking, one is usually greater than the the other. And so the goal would then be is that most of us are in the inferior world and the best way is to escape into the other one. Mm -hmm. Right now, the mystical realm, I'm trying to regurgitate something that I've read from Nature and Destiny Man, because he goes into it all out. Yeah, he does a lot more with this. All out on this in there. But 
it's more or less everything is being swallowed up into one whole yeah. thing. And then everyone's losing their individuality and such and all that kind of stuff. We all kind of achieve a divine yeah. uh, climax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what was your question in that? So I guess the twin traps of, on yeah. the one hand, when it comes to dualism, this isn't to say that um, that oh. the evil world is done away with and then we you know, take off into the goodness. So the question then becomes, well, what what is the present or what value is the present mm-hmm. and what value is the future? Now, both of these have alternative and competing visions of how we value these things. What Niebuhr's ultimate conclusion is, is that Christianity, by virtue of God descending into history, dying in history, but also triumph, having a triumphal resurrection, um, it, it, number one, legitimates the value of what is happening now it's good like creation is good good. and and what happens in the world matters Mm -hmm. and then but that's not everything um so that's against the dualist critique who wants to say that everything here is evil but we are just corrupted to sin we aren't we aren't completely evil yeah and then the the sort of bash on the mystic critique is that there is something else beyond history that when it looks down, mm-hmm. you know, it, it works almost cyclically, I guess you could say. It uh, works within us, like, I, you know, to be more of what we were created to be yeah. rather than transforming us into something completely other. This is such a side note, but it works in and through us. And yes. this might be my sort of bentamonism, but yeah. but there you go. Yeah, ew. Uh, okay, good. So ultimately, um, I, I just want to reframe this this one sentence that he said earlier. I think the one thing that we can definitely take from this, because he does get into the nuances of what we do with the end times of Jesus's return, the son of man returning does have an effect on how we understand the current time. It's not something we could just throw away, but it's also not something that can just be redeemed by itself. But God must enter history at the end of history to redeem everything. But this last section, I think, and and that is all set up to kind of keep us from uh, either escapism on the one hand, like the mystics and the monastics, but also it keeps us from trying to overcome with our dreams of uh idealisms and utopianisms and messianic uh political actors um so what we do at the end times really does affect that type of stuff we don't have time to get into it here but i just want to conclude with i think one of the best points in this about peter's problematic view of messianism niebuhr says just to reiterate this point he says peter is thus in the position of being regarded a mouthpiece of satan for applying human standards to ultimate and divine problems. We have to have a sense of proportion with the good that we are trying to attain, that we cannot try to attain a good which our nature and our contradictions do not allow us. Um, but we have we are still commissioned to bring the kingdom here, and yet we cannot bring it fully here. So that's kind of, I guess, where we can end. Any last words? I just want to say, I think I got it mixed up, but... With the dualism stuff, I think the dualism brings a lot more focus on the future. The mysticism brings a lot more focus to the present. Yes. And just wanted to clarify that. And Niebuhr's saying 
Nailed it. We kind of rushed yes, through it. So, so I apologize. We forget for our you. listeners. Highly, <laughs> highly yeah. encourage people to read it. I mean, it's this is a better one of the ones in the book. Yeah, I wish we had more time to go through each facet of it because it was it was actually relatively short but packed. Yeah, as you could tell, yeah. a long episode. All right, so that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. Thanks everybody for listening. Hit the buttons, like, subscribe, write us a good review if you're enjoying it. Thank you to everybody who has written a review. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.